This episode of the Weekly Standard Podcast is sponsored by The Great Courses. The Great Courses brings the world's greatest philosophers to your fingertips. With more than 500 audio and video series on science, history, philosophy, fine arts, better living, and more, The Great Courses are available on digital download and streaming at thegreatcourses.com or on DVD and CD or via The Great Courses apps. Best of all, you can listen to or watch The Great Courses at your own pace without the pressure of homework or exams. And now, for a limited time only, The Great Courses is giving our listeners an offer of up to 80% off the original price of selected courses, including The Secret Life of Words, English Words and Their Origins. For this limited time, 80% off offer, go to thegreatcourses.com slash WS to find out more. That's thegreatcourses.com slash WS. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, Mr. and Mrs. North America and all the ships at sea. This is Philip Terzian, literary editor of the Weekly Standard, and this is our weekly podcast on the books and arts section of the Weekly Standard. And this week we're looking at the June 8th edition, which um, uh, has on its cover a, a story about religious liberty in the courts. But we begin the books and arts section with a a book review entitled Lost Victory, Building Up, Tearing Down in Iraq by Gary Schmidt. Gary Schmidt is a well-known foreign policy theorist here in Washington and frequent contributor to the Weekly Standard. And the book that he's reviewing is entitled The Unraveling, High Hopes and Missed Opportunities in Iraq by Emma Skye, which is about the extent to which the mission in Iraq was accomplished, uh, but that how that mission has been frittered away and essentially uh, destroyed uh, during the past uh, six six or seven years of the Obama administration. It's of interest because the author, Emma Skye, is an unlikely person uh, to have reached that conclusion. She's a British human rights activist, NGO worker, and so on, who arrived in Iraq shortly after the American invasion in 2003 very skeptical, um, with a kind of what we might call transatlantic uh, skepticism about American foreign policy and the war in Iraq in particular. But as Gary Schmidt makes clear, she was very quickly converted uh, on the issue, um, not only by the facts on the ground, but also by the Americans uh, who she got to know during her tenure there. And she ended up being a kind of political advisor, uh, interestingly enough, um, to the uh, then American commander in Iraq, uh, General Odierno, now the Army Chief of Staff. So it's an interesting, it's an interesting book. Um, I think perhaps of of greater weight um, and significance, pr- pr- primarily because the author is one of the people to whom the book is addressed. That is to say, the objective, not to say skeptical, uh, analyst and spectator of the Middle East during the past decade. That is followed by a review by Charlotte Allen of a new book from Yale University Press entitled Medieval Christianity, A New History by Kevin Madigan. Kevin Madigan is a uh, fairly well-known historian of, the, of um, religion, and um, this is a 512-page account of medieval Christianity, which, as is often the case with books like this, is the sort of book you can kind of open up in any particular place and read with profit. You don't have to start with the beginning and uh, uh, finish with the end. 
It's a kind of encyclopedic account of medieval Christianity, which is, of course, Christianity from more or less the time that it arrived in Europe in, um, uh, after Armenia in the 4th century, 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th century, where it spread westward to ultimately the British Isles, down to about the time of, uh, I guess, the Enlightenment, the Renaissance, uh, the Reformation. A long period, almost a thousand years in time, Charlotte Allen gives us a pretty good overview of how Christianity manifested itself in the medieval world. She does have some complaints about the book in the sense that it tends to approach the subject a little bit too much from a contemporary academic perspective. But having said that, it's, as I say, it's one of those books that you can dip into at random and at leisure and with pleasure. And Charlotte Allen gives it a very, a very good overview. That is followed by a review by uh, Edwin Yoder, another frequent contributor to our pages, on a new biography from Oxford University Press of John Wilkes Booth, entitled Fortune's Fool, The Life of John Wilkes Booth, by Terry Alford. What makes this interesting, of course, is that this is the 2015, is the 150th rather anniversary of the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, and Alfred's book tells us everything we could possibly know about the brief 26-year-old life of the man who killed Lincoln. But it's also a volume with interesting sections on the uh, widespread and ongoing ramifications of Booth's act. People who think that violence never accomplishes anything or one single, not terribly important individual can have a profound effect on American history is are, are rebuked here. We can see that Booth, the ramifications of his act, are still with us today. And this, of course, applies to many another instance in American history, including, of course, the Kennedy assassination 52 years ago. Lincoln's life and presidency, of course, are of much greater consequence than John F. Kennedy's. And so um, uh, a book on John Wilkes Booth is always welcome, always interesting, and given the time in which it's written and published, will always, to some degree, reflect the attitude of that era toward the act and how we understand the person who perpetrated it. We have a delightful piece by Tara Barnett about an exhibition of Japanese cat art at the Japan Society in New York. I think any denizen of the internet, uh, especially Facebook, is aware of the appeal of cats in the popular culture, cat art, cat videos, and whatnot. As a Facebook member myself, I've, I've come to realize just how important cat videos are to a certain percentage of the population. Well, they're not all that new. Um, these are some fascinating, uh, comparatively recent, by that I mean 18th, 19th, early 20th century art, Japanese art, in which cats are very prominent. Uh, she also talks a little bit about a very comparable uh, program at the Brooklyn Museum on uh, of, of cats, representations of cats in ancient Egypt. But the the show at the Japan Society is about the cat art from the uh, collection of one particular collector. And whether you like cats or not, and I am not going to reveal here my general attitude toward them you will find this an amusing and instructive essay on the way animals are treated in art, the way humans react to animals 
uh, in art, among other places. David Barr has a review of a new uh, book from David McCullough, the PBS historian, entitled The Wright Brothers. Uh, the Wright Brothers, of course, are names from uh, elementary school, which I think still have considerable resonance today. They're perhaps not quite as well-known as they were perhaps when I was in school. Of course, Orville Wright had had just had died um, uh, not too long before I was born. Uh, he, he survived surprisingly into the, into the modern era. But the Wright brothers, as with many such people, are, of course, important um, on the, in their own right, but in their own right without a W. But they also were immensely complicated individuals. And this book, The Wright Brothers, by David McCullough from Simon & Schuster, goes into some detail about their family background, their family dynamics, and, of course, the long period of Orville's life after his brother Wilbur died. Uh, he survived. Wilbur died relatively young in his mid-40s. Orville survived him for another 36 years. Uh, anyway, uh, for anyone interested in American history and in uh, American lives, especially lives as they were lived in the late 19th, early 20th century, it sounds like a very interesting book, which David Barr nicely evaluates for us. We have a delightful essay from Stephen Miller. Stephen Miller is a, a distinguished writer and literary critic, but uh, he has the misfortune of having no middle name. So um, he has discovered throughout life that you know, he's not the only Stephen Miller who publishes, and so his life is complicated to some degree by the mail he gets from people thinking he's another Stephen Miller or the extent to which he's mistaken for another one in in references, or people will write to him with questions, thinking that he's the Stephen Miller whose initial is uh, J rather than M. As I say, Stephen Miller was born like George Washington. His mother neglected to give him a middle name, and he could dearly benefit from it. But I was particularly sympathetic to this piece when it came across my desk, because my first name all my life has always been misspelled in a slightly annoying way, not always, but is frequently so misspelled. So the, the the problems I've had, of course, pale in comparison with the misunderstandings that Stephen Miller has encountered being Stephen, one of many uh, famous and prominent Stephen Millers. But I think you will enjoy the, the piece for all that, and I hope you will enjoy the section in the magazine as well. And I thank you very much for joining me today, and I look forward to talking to you about the books and arts section next week.